I'm Nathan Rutherford, and welcome to Myth Madness. Welcome back. Today's episode will kick off a multi-episode story. So far, in the past few episodes, I provided snippets of various Hittite myths. Those stories come to us from tablets found in the ruins of old Hittite cities, mostly the capital city, Hattusa. Many of those tablets were damaged during the last 3,000 or so years, and because of that, the full stories are not always present. However, I was still able to give a fairly full account of the disappearance of the god Telepinu, and some different versions of the storm god Tarhuna's fight against the serpent monster Iluyanka, and a handful of others that, taken together, give at least a taste of Hittite mythology. I also tried to give background on the Hittites themselves. In my first Hittite episode, episode 23, I talked about how the Hittite civilization was a combination of several groups of people, the main ones being the Hattians and the Neshites, but another group, called the Hurrians, also had a significant role. The Hurrians had a strong influence on the Hittite religion, and they are also the ultimate source for the collection of myths I'm going to share over the next few episodes. The translations for these stories are also fairly long, which is why I'm dividing them over a couple episodes. The Hittite stories I've already talked about are the old Hittite stuff. These myths and the gods in them likely have their origins stretching back to the time of the Hattians and Neshites. The stories I'm going to share next are considered New Hittite, and while they were originally Hurrian myths, they are still very much a part of Hittite mythology. You can't really talk about one without the other. The Hittites translated these stories from the Hurrian language into Hittite, and on the physical tablets the two are written side by side. The gods in these Hurrian myths were worshipped by the Hittites too, and over time, they identified them more clearly with their own similar gods and goddesses. In fact, the best sources for Hurrian myth are the records found in Hittite cities. But the Hurrian nature of these stories is also unmistakable if you know what to look for. One of the best examples are the locations that are named within them. In the myths of Telepinu and one of the Tarhuna versus Iluyanka myths, we got the names of some places, and these names are known to be towns and other locations in the core lands of the Hittite Empire. But in the Hurrian stories, the settings are almost always places not in core Hittite lands, and are instead other places in the Middle East. While the Hittites were in central Anatolia, in what is now eastern Turkey, the Hurrian homeland was more southeast, in what is now northern Syria, northern Iraq, southeast Turkey, and in the mountains that form the borders between those three countries. The first mentions of a Hurrian people in the archaeological record go back to around 2200 BC, so over 4,000 years ago. The Hurrians spoke a common language, which is not obviously related to other known languages. Their origins are still a mystery, but they may have migrated into the area from the north, near what is now Armenia. In the centuries that followed, the Hurrians were divided into multiple fortified towns and cities. They fought and traded amongst themselves from the safety of their mountain fortresses, and while they certainly interacted with their neighbors, they never really unified or went for large-scale conquest. Instead, Hurrian communities became the vassals of many ancient Middle Eastern rulers and various empires. The Hittite Empire contained large numbers of Hurrians, and earlier empires in Mesopotamia 
had a lot of influence on the Hurrians as well. But that situation changed with the arrival of chariot warfare in the ancient Middle East. A group called the Mitanni migrated into the lands of the Hurrians from the east. These Mitanni had horses, rode chariots, and conquered a large number of Hurrian communities. And while they spoke a different language, they ruled over the Hurrians, and kind of melded with them over time. Through the Mitanni, the Hurrians became a great power, from roughly 1500 BC to 1350 BC. After the fall of this Mitanni Empire, the Hurrian communities went back to being vassals and colonies for other kingdoms, the Hittite Empire being one such example. That's enough of an introduction to the Hurrians, so let me give a little background on their religion. Hurrian gods received offerings from humans. Temples held statues of the gods, and these were dressed in fancy clothes and anointed with oil on special occasions. It was believed that if the statues weren't treated right, the gods would become angry. Hittite cults also worked in a very similar way. The most important Hurrian god was Teshub. He is a weather god, responsible for lightning, thunder, and rain that is so important for crops. Teshub is very similar to the Hittite god Tarhun and the earlier Hattite god Taru. There is probably some historical relationship between them. The Hittites themselves considered Teshub to be the same as their storm god Tarhun. Other important gods are the goddess Shashka, Teshub's sister, Tashmishu, Teshub's brother, Kumarbi, the father of Teshub, the sun god Shemij, the moon god Kushu, and others. All of these were worshipped across the various Hurrian communities. There were also other gods that were more specific to certain other locations. There were also other important gods that were not originally Hurrian, but were sucked into the Hurrian religion and taken from nearby cultures. For example, there was the god Ea, originally from Mesopotamia, and Habat, who was the wife of Teshub, but was originally from communities in Syria. There is also evidence that this borrowing of gods by the Hurrians went the other way, too, and some Hurrian gods were taken into these other cultures. Something unique to the Hurrians and Hittites, though, they worshipped some pairs of goddesses together. For example, the fate goddesses were a pair of goddesses. In Hittite, they are called the Gulses, and in Hurrian, the Ashira. But each of the goddesses in these pairs also had their own individual names, too. The Hurrians also honored people called Sharina. These were heroes from far away and long ago. The ranks of the Sharina included real historical kings and legendary mythical figures from earlier periods and other places in the region. You can think of the Sharina as being like the mortal heroes from Greek mythology. There was also one more important group of gods in Hurrian myth. These are the former gods, or primeval gods. They are often listed in documents together, and they lived in the underworld. It's not exactly clear what this group is, but they are understood as being basically older generations of gods that are discarded, impure, and, while powerful, do not have a direct influence on the world like the current generation of gods. Some of them are clearly of Mesopotamian origin based on their names, but for others it's not clear at all. These gods were not the only inhabitants of the underworld either. The Hurrians worshipped all of these underworld gods. In some of their temples, there were sacred pits, and people would throw offerings and sacrifices into these pits. The idea was putting the offerings in pits would allow them to reach gods who lived below the earth, in the underworld. You can contrast that with the worship of other gods, 
where offerings were burned and the smoke would go up to the gods who lived in the heavens and on mountaintops. The Hurrians and Hittites seemed to believe that the gods above and the gods below were in some kind of opposition with each other. In the interrelated myths I'm going to share today, and in the next episodes, this opposition is the main focus, and depicted most clearly with two opposing bloodlines or families of gods, one side more celestial and the other side more earthy. It's not always clear-cut, though. There was some flux in the makeup of different sides. It's a great big divine Game of Thrones. This entire group of myths is usually called the Kumarbi Cycle. In the myths, the god Kumarbi is the instigator of all the trouble that happens. He is locked in a rivalry against the storm god Teshev to be king of the universe. They both seemingly lead the heavenly and earthy factions of gods. The first myth is going to set up the conflict between these two competing groups of gods. This first myth used to be called the Song of Kumarbi, because it introduces us to Kumarbi. But it is now known as the Song of Birth, because a Hurrian tablet was found that actually provides the name, and the myth itself explains how Teshub and some other gods are born. Before I start, in the next few episodes, I'm going to use the Hurrian names for the gods. Translations of these stories sometimes use either the Hurrian or Hittite names, so if you read up about them somewhere else, you may see different names. The Hurrian Teshub is sometimes referred to as the Hittite god Tarhuna, or Tarhun, who I've already talked about in previous episodes. His brother, Tashmishu, is sometimes called Shuwaliat, and his sister, Shashka, is called Enzili in Hittite. Kumarbi is always called Kumarbi. Okay, and with that out of the way, it's time to start the Kumarbi cycle, with the Song of Birth. Here goes. Long ago in former years, the god Alalu was king in heaven. While Alalu was on the throne, the god An served as his cupbearer. An stood next to Alalu when he sat on his throne. He regularly bowed down to Alalu and was responsible for handing drinking cups to his king. It sounds like An is a servant to Alalu, but you should know that in ancient Middle Eastern societies, being the cupbearer to the king was actually a very respectable job. Think about it. You were the one who gave the king his food and drink, who stood with the king when he made decisions, who listened to the king when he was in audience, but also when he was in private, too. So, Anne is in a fairly influential position relative to Alalu. Nine years passed with Alalu as king in heaven, but in the ninth year, the cupbearer Anne rose up against his king. Anne fought Alalu in a great battle and was victorious. Alalu, for his part, now defeated, ran away from Anne and went down to stay in the Dark Earth. The Dark Earth is the Hittite and Hurrian name for the underworld. So does that mean that Alalu was actually killed? Or does he just go and become an inhabitant of the underworld? It's not clear, but at the same time, it doesn't really matter. By losing the kingship, Alalu has lost his power and influence, so for all intents and purposes, he is functionally dead going forward. He will not play an individual role again. Alalu has gone to the Dark Earth, dead or not dead, and has joined the ranks of the discarded generations of primeval gods. Meanwhile, Anne has seated himself on the former throne of Alalu. But like how he has replaced Alalu, he now needs to find a replacement for himself as cupbearer. 
That job falls to Kumarbi, who is, interestingly, the son of Alalu. Why he made the son of his defeated rival his own cupbearer is not clear. There was probably some understood reason for it, but to us it doesn't seem like the best idea. Regardless, Anne is now king in heaven, and the powerful Kumarbi is his cupbearer. Kumarbi bows down at Anne's feet and continues putting drinking cups in his hand when needed. Nine years pass, and in the ninth year, as you might expect, Anne is forced to fight a battle against Kumarbi. The fighting was fierce. Anne and Kumarbi stare each other down and wrestle each other. Eventually, Anne was unable to withstand the piercing eyes of Kumarbi. Anne retreated. He broke away from Kumarbi and ran away, trying to escape to heaven. But before he could escape, Kumarbi grabbed Anne's feet from behind, dragged him down from heaven, bites Anne's genitals, and swallows them. We are told that inside Kumarbi, Anne's manliness fused with Kumarbi's heart like how tin and copper are fused to make bronze. Kumarbi considers this to be a great victory. By castrating Anne, he has done two things. He has symbolically removed Anne's power, and also, more obviously, seemingly ended Anne's ability to have children. This means that Anne shouldn't be able to have any pesky children who would then turn out to be Kumarbi's rivals for the throne. And with that, Kumarbi laughs with pleasure. But Anne turns around, and he tells Kumarbi that he should not actually be happy. Anne tells Kumarbi, First, I have impregnated you with Teshub, the August One. Second, I have impregnated you with the river Aranza, not to be resisted. Third, I have also impregnated you with the August Tashmishu. You will go and finish the pregnancy by smashing the cliffs of Mount Tassa with your head. When he has finished his speech, Anne continues on his way up to heaven and hides himself there. This is just like how Alalu went down to the underworld when he was defeated earlier. So Anne has left Kumarbi pregnant with three gods, Teshub, Tashmishu, and the Aranza River. It is at this point that the tablets that are the source of this story begin to become more unreadable, and how Kumarbi is going to give birth to these three gods is not completely clear. The tablet does not always refer to these three by their names, but sometimes uses titles for them instead. It's also possible that Kumarbi is going to end up giving birth to more gods than just these three. Anne possibly refers to other gods inside Kumarbi too, but it's not clear if he's referring to the same three gods in different ways, or to additional ones. The tablet is not entirely clear either way, and even the order of the births is up for debate. But I'm going to try and make the most sense of it as possible. Upon finding out he is pregnant, Kumarbi is terrified. The first thing he does is spit on the ground. His spit is described as a mixture of spit and manliness. So, in other words, biting off Anu's genitals has also given him a mouth full of semen. Naturally, he wants to get that out of his system. The spit lands on Mount Kanzura, and from that spot we are told a fearsome god is born. Who is this fearsome god? I'll come back to that in a moment. Anyway, after the birth of the fearsome god, Kumarbi goes to the city of Nippur, a city in faraway Mesopotamia, not in the lands of the Hurrians. Kumarbi waits in Nippur, as the months pass and he slowly comes to the end of his pregnancy. For him, it can't come soon enough. He spends the time in pain, weeping and moaning, 
his belly swells. But since he is a man, he has no way to give birth to the gods growing inside of him. He begs that they come out, somehow, either from his body, from his head, or even from something called his good place, likely his penis. Kumarbi is not alone, though. The god Ea has joined him in his throne room. Ea is a wise and clever god. He is treated like an advisor or judge by the other gods. He is very powerful, but he is not actually a king. Instead, in these Hurrian stories, he is going to have the job of king-maker, and is the one who will decide which one will or will not be king of the other gods. Ea is not actually a Hurrian god. Ea is originally from Mesopotamia, and is one of those earlier figures that inspired the Hurrians and was sucked into their mythology. Other gods are there too, all attending Kumarbi and waiting for the coming births. At this point, voices start to come from the gods inside Kumarbi. The unborn gods begin talking to the other assembled gods waiting in the room. Someone the text calls Agilim, meaning taker of the crown, begins to talk to Ea. His speech might be intended to taunt an overhearing Kumarbi, and possibly also to foretell the coming power of the god Teshub. Agilim lists out a series of different gods and goddesses, and describes how they will and must give powers and virtues to Teshub. Earth will give strength, heaven will give heroism, Anne will give manliness, Nara will give power, and so will Napshara, and on and on the list goes. Kumarbi, of all people, is also listed, and he supposedly will supply Teshub with wisdom. At this point, Anne returns on the scene to express his happiness after hearing these words coming from inside Kumarbi. He also stands over the moaning Kumarbi, and he encourages the unborn gods to burst out from the body of Kumarbi, his rival. Anne says, I gave everything for them to come forth. They will make him, Kumarbi, give birth like a woman. Come, Teshub, come forth with thunder. Come out by the mouth, or if you want, come from the good place. The gods within Kumarbi are not immediately convinced by Anne. The voice says that if he comes out, Kumarbi will break him like a reed, hence the reason why the other gods need to give Teshub all those powers first. The unborn gods even express worry that if they come out the wrong way, they will be dirty and impure. The voice of Teshub complains that if he came out by the ear, he will be defiled, because coming out of an ear and getting covered by wax is just, well, gross. But if he comes out by the good place, like a woman, Kumarbi will cry out in pain. So, what do they do? Another god is said to break Kumarbi like a stone. I suspect, based on what Anne told Kumarbi at the very beginning of the story, that Kumarbi's head was smashed open against the cliffs of a mountain. The result is that a god, referred to as Kazal, meaning the proud one, erupts out of Kumarbi's skull and bows in front of Ea. This Kazal god is not clearly named. Kazal is really just a symbol. The god is only called the Valiant King. Afterwards, we are also told that the heroic Teshub came out through the good place, out through Kumarbi's penis. So, now let's take a moment to talk about who exactly is being born to Kumarbi, and how. First, there was the fearsome god born from Kumarbi's mouth, when he spat on the mountain. Then, there was Agilim, who spoke from inside Kumarbi's belly and talks about how the gods need to give Teshub power before any of them can be born. Then there is Kazal, who erupts out of Kumarbi's split head. And then there is Teshub, 
who we are told comes out of Kumarbi's good place, his penis. Now, while we are told that Teshub comes out of the good place, a lot of scholars seem to think that the word Kazal is actually referring to Teshub, since Kazal is called the Valiant King, and that sounds a lot like Teshub. But since we are directly told that Teshub comes out of the good place, I think it's more likely Kazal, the god born out of Kumarbi's head, is actually someone else. Agilim could also be Teshub, but he could also be Teshmishu, or Aranza, talking about the birth of his brother, Teshub. The fearsome god, born on the mountain, could be the Aranza River. The Aranza River is the Hittite name for the Tigris River. The Tigris is one of the main rivers running through the Middle East, and it originates in the mountains of Hittite and Hurrian lands, likely where Mount Kanzura was located. But we have a problem. Later in the story, there is a hard-to-read segment where the fate goddesses summarize what has happened, and they give some more frustrating details. The fate goddesses serve as midwives to Kumarbi, and they are described as helping to birth the Aranza River from Kumarbi's good place. So maybe the fearsome god is actually Tashmishu, and he was born on Mount Kanzura. The fate goddesses also do suggest that they may have birthed Tashmishu from or on Mount Kanzura itself. If you assume that none of these gods came out of the same place, this could mean that Tashmishu is born from Kumarbi's mouth on Mount Kanzura, Teshub from Kumarbi's head, and Aranza from Kumarbi's penis. The problem, though, is the myth does still say the heroic Teshub came out through the good place. So we really can't be sure who came from Kumarbi's head. It's confusing, I know, but all that confusion points to a couple things. It could be that the order of events here is actually messed up. It could also be that more than the three gods are being born. For example, in Hurrian mythology, the sister of Teshub and Tashmishu is the goddess Shashka. Nowhere in this text do we get a description of her birth, but she is still presumably the daughter of Kumarbi. There is also Agilim and Kazal. Scholars assume that these are titles for the other better-known gods, like Teshub, but maybe they're referring to still more children of Kumarbi. When the fate goddesses summarize some of the births, they also say that they helped Kumarbi give birth to the Kanzura Mountain, too. So, to get around this confusion, let's just imagine that Kumarbi has a bit of a birth explosion, and a whole bunch of gods come out of him at once, from different places. His head is split open. His good place is split open. Afterwards, Kumarbi falls down out of his chair, probably because his body has been ripped open in numerous places. He changes color, likely meaning he turned pale, or at least looks sickly after his dramatic labor. But he recovers fairly quickly and makes a disturbing demand. Kumarbi tells Ea to give him his child so he can eat him. He says he will smash Teshub like a brittle reed. Because giving birth in this way has made Kumarbi like a woman, and that, for him, is unacceptable. But Ea gets a rock and gives that to Kumarbi to eat instead of the storm god. Kumarbi bites down on the rock and ends up breaking his teeth on it. He cries in pain and then calls to the other assembled gods, asking why he was afraid of Teshub. After all, he is only a stone and not some all-powerful god. Kumarbi takes the stone and throws it away. The stone will be placed in a sacred place, as part of a cult. 
We are told that rich men and powerful lords will sacrifice cattle and sheep to it, and poor men will sacrifice ground-up grain to it too. The fate goddesses, who were also attending Kumarbi's birth, begin to put Kumarbi's split head back together. They sew up his head and his penis, like how someone sews back together a tear in a shirt or a pair of pants. Finally, with the births over, the newborn gods are all present. Anne sees all his new children and is happy. After this, the tablet breaks off, so fast forward to a new scene. Teshub is grown up and presumably has become king by defeating Kumarbi, overpowering other gods, and also maybe through the support of Ea. Teshub talks to his pet bull, Sherry. This is one of the bulls that pulls his chariot. Teshub says, I drove Kumarbi from his throne and cursed him. He arrogantly asks, Who else among the gods will fight me in battle? No one can possibly defeat me. Kumarbi cannot. Ea cannot. The sun god cannot either. But the bull Sherry warns Teshub not to speak that way, that he should not curse the gods, and should especially not curse Ea. Sherry says Ea will hear him and be angry, and that Ea is so powerful, Teshub will not be able to lift his head when Ea speaks. As it happens, Teshub's words were overheard by another god, named Tari. Tari was a god of the wilderness, and he went to Ea to tell him what he heard. After Tari tells Ea, Ea became sad and offended. But he was also angry at Tari, though, saying that whoever curses me curses himself, and whoever repeats those curses also curses himself. Ea compares his anger to a pot on a fire that is in danger of spilling over. At this point, there is another large break in the tablet, and a large part of the story is lost. But when it resumes, Ea is counting the months pass by. The reason being we have another pregnancy. This time, the Earth Goddess is pregnant, and she ends up giving birth to two sons. A messenger comes to tell Ea the news, and Ea rewards the messenger with luxurious fancy clothes. What happens next is unclear. The two sons of the Earth Goddess are likely Kumarbi's sons, and he has raised them to battle against Teshub. It's also likely that they are defeated by Teshub. It's also likely that Teshub's cursing resulted in an angry Ea going over to the side of Kumarbi and helping him impregnate the Earth Goddess. In the next myth in the Kumarbi cycle, we'll actually see Ea and Kumarbi in cahoots. And that's all for today. Next time, I will pick up with more myths from the Hurrian Kumarbi cycle. So stay tuned. If you're enjoying this podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give the pod a five-star review. As always, thank you for listening.